This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Arbitration Station. We celebrated 100 years and we left, but we had to come back just because I miss you, Sadia. That's that's why we're back. Oh, I miss you too, Brian. <laughs> and, and oh, someone's missing. <laughs> it's just you and me, Brian. That's right. Maybe this is foreshadowing when we kick Joel out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we're just kidding. <laughs> um, but we wanted to hop back on to discuss two things. One, we have a substantive topic. Well, not really substantive, but quite substantive. Um, an interview with Kristina Kripkova, um, who works at Integritest based in Ukraine, giving, um, you know, we did take that week off in, in honor of the war, but we now we're going to get some boots on the ground reporting on what's happening to the legal industry and arbitration outfits in Ukraine. So that is mm -hmm. the main purpose of this, uh, this, this special episode. But we also wanted to talk about ECA in Edinburgh that you and I will be attending. Yes, very much looking forward to it. Um, and uh, it's going to be an exciting ECA because it's the there was a break, of course, because of COVID. So everyone is looking forward to ECA, I think. Exactly. <laughs> the arbitration yes. community. Yeah. Part of this was going to be advertising for to um, attract more registrations to the event. But I hear that it is full and people are being put on wait lists. Mm -hmm. um, but not to worry. I've heard that, you know, people will be getting off the wait list, um, but they just need to make sure that capacity is observed and everything. So um, we'll still promote it. And hopefully we can see as many people as possible there. Yeah, very much looking forward to seeing you all there. Uh, if you are speaking, Anika, and want to be on the podcast, get in touch. Otherwise, we will be in touch in any event to offer uh, some slots. Uh, exactly. So that's the teaser that um, we will be doing similar to what we did with Sydney or doing our best to do what we did in Sydney. Sydney was a bit extreme, um, but we will be hopefully getting some special episodes together to get some of the panelists onto the podcast, talk about what they are going to talk about at ECA or something that they're passionate about. And we'll release some special episodes while we're on our break. Mm, yeah, very much uh, looking forward to it. So it's 18th to the 21st of September. Um, the keynote address will start start off the um, conference with Louise Arbor, and then there's some really interesting panels that I've had to look at. One that really caught my eye was the it's the last panel. Probably they did that on purpose. Uh, panel 15, which is a great mm. debate on a world without investment arbitration, and with amongst others our favorite Toby Lando. That's right. And Kevin Lamb's <laughs> yeah. also on there and Jan Klenhasterkamp will be the moderator. So that mm -hmm. I think is an interesting topic for those of us that work in the field and mm -hmm. are interested, curious and or concerned about what the futures has for investment arbitration. So that one really mm -hmm. caught my eye. Mm -hmm. And there's a specific panel for young practitioners as well, a panel 10 with a list of 
future leaders or existing superstars already yes um, with a lot of names that i can see that are great so uh, yeah i think i'm going to definitely be looking at that one as well and old i i attended that one at sydney and i found it really exciting not only because these are more of our contemporaries but also <laughs> because um it's quite a new take on what the new generation has on the future of arbitration mm -hmm. and practitioners so that would definitely be one to watch um, and then there's also things that happen outside of the conference. Some arguably the most interesting things happen outside of the conference. Um, what are you, what do you have on your docket in Edinburgh? Uh, I've got um, the one thing that I'm really, really looking forward to and which I invite everyone to join in is going to be a Kluwer arbitration quiz event. Um, and so that's going to be exciting. Um, and I really invite everybody to, to join that one. And in fact, our, the Arbitration Station podcast is going to be a media sponsor of that event. Um, and uh, yours truly will be participating to the event <laughs> as well. Full disclosure, full disclosure. Yeah. So you're going to be taking the quiz. I'm going to be taking the quiz. Yes. I'm going to be one of the people who are supposed to answer the questions. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. That is correct. Pressure. Yeah, I know pressure. I'm supposed to. Yeah, it's it's going to be a light, you know, um, I don't know if it's going to be substantive questions on arbitration or about arbitration. That's uh, right. still under debate, but it's definitely going to be a fun event. So Beju Vasani is going to be participating. Anjit McNewson is going to be participating. Kabir Dugal, of course. Um, uh, Karina Baltag will be moderating along with uh, Mike. I can't pronounce his, his last name. Yes, <laughs> you said it. So, uh, honestly, all-star panel, uh, and they graciously invited me to participate. So, yeah, very much looking That's forward great. to that. That's great. So, everyone should register. Uh, you can find it on Kluber's website. Um, that will be the Monday at 6 p.m. Also, Monday at 6 p.m. will be the ADGM Arbitration Center and Arbitrar holding a cocktail reception at the Johnny Walker uh, mm bar on uh, Princess Street. So that's also on Monday and you can um, contact them to register. But I think it's a new uh, Johnny Walker expose slash bar that they've opened right in the heart of Edinburgh. So that's um, local, local, what should I say, spirits and uh, places to uh, meet other colleagues from the Middle East, which will be really exciting since I know that a lot of people will be coming from Europe, but we do have some representatives coming from all over the world. Um, so that will also be a great event. Yeah. And then, absolutely. then there'll be breakfasts, lunches, and dinners and banquets, and it's going to be a very stressful three days. Yes. There's a, a lot of invitations that have been sent through for all these three types of events. So, uh, again, um, you know, Brandon and I are going to be there. So get in touch. Um, and we will, of course, uh, you know, see you wherever you are. Uh, if you want to see us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. Come say hello to us. Um, well, I'm excited uh, to see you, Saudi, in person again and um, wishing you, you and everyone else a great Ika. And uh, with that said, we can hop on to our interview with Christina. Thanks. Yes. Let's listen to her. We have a special episode, a unique episode, and uh, just some an episode that we want to have published for the purpose of providing information to the general arbitration public 
about what's happening in Ukraine during the war. I think we've all been keeping up with the news and we've all been very interested in what's happening, both on the humanitarian side and the political side, but we wanted to get our guest today to talk about how it's affected the legal industry and most specifically um, arbitration practitioners and practices uh, within Ukrainian law firms and abroad. We have with us a counsel at Integritas, um, Kristina Hripkova, who was based in Kiev, but is now residing in Brussels um, for obvious reasons. Uh, welcome, Kristina, to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored and delighted uh, to join you and uh, speak about the events uh, in Ukraine. And uh, let me start first with the congratulations. You hit 100 episodes. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> You've much. You've done tre tremendous job. And uh, whenever uh, I spoke to Ukrainian students or junior associates, I always recommended uh, to listen to your uh, episodes, uh, which are not only uh, interesting uh, and full of information, but also very fun <laughs> to <you>. listen to. So, <laughs> yeah, well, very well done. Thank you for the kind words. We appreciate it. Um, to launch into this, and, and we spoke about this off air, and just to frame the discussion. Uh, we'd want to keep this away from the highly um, emotional political side and just keep it to what's happening with law firms um, and Ukrainian law firms. And one point that I think we should start with is um, Ukrainian law firms, which obviously probably had Russian clients. Um, and I'm sure there were policies like there were policies all over the world about the refusal to work with uh, Russian clients. So I just wanted to know how the Ukrainian law firms were reacting to this. Uh, well, uh, almost immediately after the war started, the Ukrainian legal market saw an avalanche of announcements from Ukrainian law firms on their websites that they would cease providing legal services to Russian businesses and individuals. The rationale is obvious and straightforward. Ukrainian lawyers did not want to advise Russian clients that are diligent taxpayers contributing mm -hmm. to the Russian war budget. Uh, Integr Integritas, for example, made the following uh, announcement, the statement on its website, uh, and I may quote it, we will not provide any legal services to Russian businesses and individuals unless they also condemn the war by publicly declaring their position and supporting Ukrainian resistance. And uh, I would also add that this refusal did not affect the work of our Ukrainian office, as we had almost no Russian clients. Okay. But the situation may be a little bit different uh, with other law firms. At the same time, uh, uh, Integritas has office in Kazakhstan, and our Kazakh colleagues um, fully supported us and, uh, and the said statement. But for the Kazakh colleagues, it was a bit different. Uh, Russian business is active in Kazakhstan, as you may know, and right. our team there had to refuse from cooperation with them. And for them, it was a bit more harmful, uh, but still they did it and we appreciated a lot. Uh, I think uh, I, I would also add that um, the sanctions against the aggressor state uh, have been supported by more than 450 international corporations that have scaled back businesses in Russia as a sign of powerful condemnation of Putin's regime. Mm -hmm. uh, the efficiency of these decisions apparently depends on their con concurrency. However, still many companies uh, have continued the operation in Russia. And to address the situation in April, the Ukrainian Bar Association 
issued the statement on termination of business with companies who continue operation in I the see. Russian Federation. And uh, in Ukraine, more than 70 law firms, including integrators, have united and expressed their position to this providing legal services also to international companies that are still doing business and maintain their presence in Russia. So there are different uh, statements uh, which have been joined by law firms, including my firm. So you said that this uh, statement from the Bar Association was in April. So I presume that these initial policies that these firms had um, and the, the scope of their restrictions are still in place today. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, uh, I reckon that these policies are in place now, at least uh, our policy is in place. Uh, and uh, in my opinion, law firms uh, will stick to these policies at least until the end of the war and for a certain period of time afterwards, depending uh, right. on the outcome of the war. Um, I, th I think mm -hmm. that it doesn't, I mean, this obviously was, uh, was helpful and strategic for the Russian clients, but I presume there was a lot of trade and a lot of contracts between Russian clients and Ukrainian clients, since perhaps you were representing the Ukrainian side. For those cases that were likely suspended, um, or were they suspended, or what did you see from your Ukrainian clients having, if you had any cases that were um, against Russian clients, for example? Uh, I think I would start with uh, explaining the background, uh, because after 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and started war in the Donetsk and Lugansk region, many Russian companies gradually left Ukraine due mm -hmm. to various reasons, for example, Ukrainian sanctions or refusal of Ukrainians to purchase goods produced in Russia or other services from Russian companies. So the number of projects from Russian clients decreased significantly. Uh, to illustrate, uh, approximately 30% of work of law firms had come from Russia before 2014. Okay. Uh, so third of, third of their uh, market. Uh, but before the war started in February 2022, this number dropped significantly and constituted approximately 5 to 10% uh, oh, of the wow. workload. Yeah. Uh, in turn, this means that refusal to represent Russian businesses did not have a major impact. Uh, in the business for Ukrainian law firms. And uh, I don't know a single Ukrainian firm which had a Russian company as a big anchor right. client and was significantly impacted uh, by refusal to, to represent Russian clients. And uh, as regards uh, disputes, um, we have a different situation. Uh, we spend in arbitrations and... Um, it depends on whether um, Ukrainian party acts as claimant or respondent. Right. Um, generally speaking, Ukrainian respondents uh, try to adjourn arbitration proceedings. Mm -hmm. For instance, in one of our cases, which is an LCA arbitration, a Ukrainian respondent sought suspension of the proceedings up to one year on the ground that it cannot pay its foreign counsel due to the ban of the National Bank of Ukraine to make payments in foreign currency to foreign companies mm -hmm. since the war started. However, uh, these monetary restrictions have already been lifted in mid-June. And in the end, the tribunal uh, uh, said that it could grant just four months uh, extension, mm -hmm. not extension, sorry, susp suspension. Uh, so the Ukrainian respondent did not manage to derail their proceedings uh, 
um, another example, uh, we have um, an arbitration heard under rules uh, of the International Commercial Arbitration Court at the Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce and Industry based in Kiev. Mm-hmm. And we represent a Ukrainian claimant against the Russian respondent. Our client was obviously interested in the expeditious resolution of the case and did not seek suspension of the proceedings uh, referring to the pending war. Um, So these proceedings are still ongoing on track uh, and they were not affected by war. But at the same time, uh, if the parties um, want to settle, for -hmm. example, see the prospects of settlement or uh, if the subject matter of the dispute can be significantly affected by the military actions, let's say it could be uh, train cars which can be simply destroyed by shelling right. uh, or whatever, uh, the parties may agree to suspend the dispute for a certain period of time just to see whether there is any uh, any uh, reason to, to continue arbitration and to spend money for something which... Uh, which which won't worth it in the end if if there is no asset, you know, uh, yes, be the subject matter. And, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add a couple of words about treaty cases. Oh yeah. Uh, you, you know that uh, Ukraine unfortunately is a respondent in many treaty cases, uh, and from what I've heard from my peers. Uh, the Ministry of Justice uh, being responsible to represent uh, Ukraine uh, filed requests uh, uh, asking for suspension, I, I guess, on all cases, in mm-hmm. all cases. Uh, but uh, at the same time, some of the cases have already resumed uh, and some of them uh, are still on hold. Uh, if we're talking, if, if we are talking about Crimean cases, where obviously Ukrainian investors are claimants and are interested in the fastest resolution yes. of the dispute, uh, I know that uh, at least in one case uh, on which we we worked uh, as a Ukrainian legal counsel, in that case uh, we filed the request to suspend. The case stopped for for a short period of time, and then it was resumed. Uh, also, I know that Naftagas cases uh, and private bank case mm-hmm. also related to the assets in Crimea, uh, uh, they are on track. So they have not been suspended. And what was the, um, you may or may not know, the justification for such a short suspension? It seems like that is an arbitrary period, four months, for example. Um, what do you know if there was any justification for that or it was just a let's see how this progresses type of reasoning so uh, in some cases I know that uh, it, it depends on which stage uh, the case is mm-hmm. uh, when the war started everyone was shocked and uh, we had issues with uh, uh, connection and uh, it, it was obviously hard to to talk to witnesses, to collect evidence, uh, to uh, to have like a proper communication between uh, foreign legal counsel and the Ministry of Justice, right. or if we're talking about commercial arbitration with the local counsel. Uh, many people evacuated, including lawyers from Ukraine to some other parts of Ukraine or abroad. So it took time 
which means that uh, it was not possible to meet the deadline. Let's say you have a deadline in early March to submit your brief, and at the same time you need to hide in in a bomb shelter. Right. Uh, you know, so it, it was just not possible to to continue proper work. So these were the main uh, justifications for the suspension. I see. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot comment uh, about. Uh, um, justification for a longer period right uh, that makes the, sense. The, the, yeah yeah the, there might be some some reasons uh conveyed to the tribunal which persuaded them to, to grant such loan extensions but yeah. uh, uh, i cannot think of them right now the, so i mean we talked about what you mentioned about the restrictions for international bank transfers and and payments to foreign companies I imagine that, I mean, regard, you said that the Russian clients made up a small percentage, so perhaps that wasn't impactful, but I presume that there were some uh, significant impact on Ukrainian law firms and they must have taken measures to respond to these, to these issues. Have there been policies in place internally as far as like um, the business side of the law firms? Uh, well, we uh, obviously saw the drop of a workload, mm -hmm. not only my firm, but all other firms. Uh, so the legal business has suffered tremendously facing the new economic reality. Uh, why, why, why did it happen? Uh, so property of many clients, uh, Ukrainian clients or foreign clients who have assets in Ukraine, uh, like warehouses, plants, factories, wind turbines or solar plants generating green uh, energy, etc., were partially completely destroyed by Russian army. Right. Uh, the infrastructure needed uh, for the logistics was also destroyed. Uh, the seaports have been blocked. Uh, in agricultural sector, uh, continuous shelling caused fires on grain fields and made it unsafe for workers to plant or harvest crops. In such circumstances, clients in trouble were not able to pay fees to lawyers. Right. And uh, they were not in a position to think about new arbitrations or litigations. They wanted to preserve their assets and they wanted to save money uh, because the future was so uncertain. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, some foreign clients decided to wait and see how the situation would unfold. Uh, and uh, cumulatively, these two factors uh, lead to the drop of workloads for Ukrainian law firms um, and uh, the legal market reacted differently uh, to these changes uh, and, and challenges uh, that came with the war. I may uh, speak about uh, the policies introduced by, uh, by integrities. Yes. So their priority for my firm was to preserve the team because we believe that the employees constitute our biggest value. Mm -hmm. And uh, during February and March, um, salaries at Integritas remained at pre-war level, and we saw we foresaw a protected, sorry, protracted war. Um, so we took the most strategic approach. In particular, the management of the firm allocated an emergency budget, uh, which allowed to keep salaries unchanged for eighty percent of staff. Wow. Uh, yeah, only the highest paid lawyers had their salaries reduced to the limit of 3,000 euro. 
uh, and uh, integritist partners have voluntarily waived part of their compensation in order to ensure their emergency budget. And it will be in place until March uh, 2023, so for one year. And uh, we will stick to these conditions, although the workload, as I said, on the team during the war is lower than before it. Uh, of course, after martial law is lifted and the firm gets more work, uh, the firm will return to the pre-war level of compensation. Okay. So this is this is how uh, Integritas handled their uh, the crisis. Uh, I would say that uh, we were quite um, ready, and we learned the lesson of 2014 right. uh, and the crisis in. Uh, uh, 2008 uh, but unfortunately uh from communication with peers i see that uh, our situation is quite unusual in most firms everything is different and they are forced to make more complex decisions to illustrate uh two major law firms uh lost their arbitration practices completely in both cases arbitration partners with senior lawyers left the firms and joined uh, Polish law firms, and okay. one of the yeah, and one of these firms even dismissed more than thirty percent of their legal staff, uh, which is a very extreme example. Mm-hmm. Uh, other uh, competitors, uh, they primarily did uh, salary cuts, and introduced a hybrid approach. For example, one uh, major law firm, uh, uh, their policy is the following. If an associate uh, has enough billable hours per month, then his or her salary remains unchanged. But if uh, she or he has not enough, uh, the monthly salary constitutes 30% of a pre-war salary. So that's the approach. Significant. Yeah. Another approach is that the firm introduced salary cuts for senior legal staff. But it is conditional. And uh, uh, if associates had enough billable hours during war, the firm promises to compensate that withheld amount after the war. Mm-hmm. So that's another approach which has been introduced by the competitor, uh, which also makes sense. Um, Survival, yeah. Yeah. That's is, is this so mostly these, these examples that you provided, is this typical of a Ukrainian firm? I mean, I know you guys are an international firm, but your main base is in Ukraine. Or is it um, more international firms that have had this these types of approaches? Or is it just across the board similar? I think it's across the board because uh, several examples were uh, taken from Ukrainian firms and one from international law firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, in Ukraine, we do not have many internationals. Uh, market leaders are mostly Ukrainian law firms. I think now we have only four uh, international law firms which have offices in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you look at the rankings, uh, you will see that uh, uh, top 10, obviously, are Ukrainian law firms and maybe one or two internationals right. are within that top 10. Right. The um, And how has the how have international firms not based in Ukraine? So in the UK or, or anywhere else in Europe or even in the US, have they been helpful in, in responding to not, not maybe direct support, but if there was a secondment or 
some sort of short-term relocation of, of employees or staff. Has that, has that happened or has it kind of been uh, the Ukrainian firms on, the, on their own? Uh, we experience huge support and solidarity uh, from day one, uh, I personally received so many messages of support uh, from my uh, former colleagues uh, who are now based in different parts of the world and from our partner law firms uh, where uh, um, colleagues asked how they can help. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously one, one thing they could do uh, apart from donating to the um, Ukrainian army or uh, uh, to the humanitarian aid was exactly to uh, help with the convents uh, and to help uh, give work uh, to Ukrainian lawyers who are now uh, experiencing some shortage of work. Um, so um, we were offered online or offline uh, secondments for our lawyers mm-hmm. uh, from different European law firms. Um, it turned out that finding secondment for arbitration lawyers is way easier than for lawyers from right. other practices. <laughs> yeah, for obvious reasons. Uh, in my practice, uh, we mostly negotiated part-time uh, secondments as we also n- uh, need our associates to continue working on our current uh, cases, right. uh, even though the amount of work dropped. Um, as regards other practices, uh, uh, we tend to agree on three to six months um, uh, secondment with the possibility to return uh, the employee to Ukraine in case the war ends sooner. Right. Uh, we agree on this term also because a month or two is not enough uh, to get enough experience and to network and especially if this secondment is offline um, the efforts that which uh, have been taken by an employee to relocate to move the family if the family is accompanying a person Uh, it's it's just you know make made no no sense uh, to do it just for one or two months of Uh, course Yeah, and we know how hard to find an apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we both in know Paris in Stockholm. Or in London, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, oh, in Stockholm, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so you talked about the current work, and that's something interesting. And I know in arbitration or disputes in general, when there's a crisis, although the current work or the previous work may have dropped, sometimes new work can appear. So I was wondering, what does the client work look like now um, for Ukrainian firms and in arbitration practices specifically? Uh, Well, um, uh, I'm proud to say that uh, we felt full understanding, solidarity and support of our clients. Uh, uh, We, like any firm, had a certain receivable which foreign clients quickly closed to support us financially. Uh, Many foreign clients uh, tried to give us some extra work Uh, realizing how important it is to help the firm right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also felt an unprecedented solidarity at all levels from the management of the client company to the personal level. Uh, And uh, uh, in turn, we walked in our Ukrainian clients' shoes and offered them to do some work pro bono. Oh, wow. uh, if yeah, if we see that our Ukrainian client is real trouble, uh, as I mentioned earlier, let's say the plant or warehouse or whatever or, or other asset uh, was destroyed, 
uh, we're obviously happy to help. Right now, um, uh, the focus of our uh, work is on um, assessing damages and documenting damages caused by the war. Okay. Um, another uh, big chunk of work is uh, relocation of business uh, from uh, eastern parts and 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 uh, south of Ukraine, uh, which is temporarily occupied uh, by Russian forces. So we just talked about um, the new how the workload is for clients or the client work for Ukrainian firms specifically to the arbitration practice. But have you noticed a difference between? how work has changed or how work is now for arbitration practices versus other practices like transactional or corporate commercial? Um, as I mentioned, uh, we have our arbitration cases ongoing and still pending. So I would say that arbitration practice was less affected by the events. Okay. At the same time, uh, all projects led by transactional practices are on hold. Uh, even if you want to conduct a transaction, it is not possible to do legally. Access to registers is restricted. Uh, also, some state bodies are on pause. Um, now everything gradually gets better, uh, but we still uh, see uh, that Ukrainian courts, for example, did not uh, function properly. So comparing to arbitration uh, practice, uh, M&A practices were in much bigger trouble. Mm, that makes sense. Is it too early to say that there may be some investment cases that have started to be thought about, or is it too early to assess these these consequences? And as you say, the first step is assessing the problem, and then the next step will be discussing whether they can think about disputes. Or funders, for example, is that something that has come up for Ukrainian clients? Uh, obviously, Ukrainian clients uh, and, and international clients who invested in Ukraine, right. they are interested in, in, in uh, getting their uh, losses uh, being paid mm -hmm. uh, by the aggressor state. But there are so many uh, problematic issues uh, when it comes to jurisdiction mm -hmm. uh, and state immunity and which uh, treaties standard uh, uh, was actually violated by Russia. Uh, obviously, we are considering all those challenges uh, and speak with our clients, uh, but there is no simple answer and we cannot advise our clients right now that you need to, to bring the claim under right. the Russian-Ukrainian treaty right now because indeed that, that there are many, many problematic issues, including the um, uh, effective control of the territory mm. or where the asset was located and so on and so forth. I think we should have um, another podcast dedicated to, to this very topic because it, it is very broad, broad and um, problematic. Um, apart from treaty cases, uh, several other cases uh, have already been launched. For example, uh, Ukraine has already initiated international proceedings against Russia in the International Court of Justice, uh, accusing Russia of using false claims of genocide to justify its invasion of the country. Uh, there were several publications on GAR uh, mm -hmm. where they explained the rationale, uh, the rationale and how this case is, is progressing. 
Uh, also, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has also commenced the proceedings and opened the investigation. Um, in addition to treaty cases, uh, there are several claims brought against Russia to the European Court of Human Rights. Right. Um, Russia remains a member of the Council of Europe uh, until at least uh, 16th September 2022, uh, which means that complaints about its violation of human rights are subject to consideration by the European Courts of Human Rights. Right. In, in turn, this means that uh, we still have time uh, to file claims against Russia uh, under the uh, Protocol 1, Article 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the most recent example uh, is the claim brought by a Ukrainian oligarch, uh, Renat Akhmetov, mm-hmm. uh, against Russia. And he demanded that the aggressor country be held liable for the destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure and for compensation uh, for gross violations of his property rights uh, during Russia's unprovoked military aggression. Um, actually, uh, Renat Akhmetov, he is the richest person in Ukraine, and uh, uh, he owns uh, two huge steel plants in Mariupol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you know, Mariupol was completely destroyed by Russian uh, artillery. Right. Um, and um, in my understanding, there are several grounds uh, of his claim. So the first one is that Russia... Russian invaders uh, stole and illegally exported metallurgical products manufactured at his two plants in Mariupol. Uh, And uh, the second ground is the Russian army destroyed his steel plants during the uh, siege and then occupation of Mariupol. Mm. Uh, I read in the press that claims are potentially worth $20 billion dollars. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yet again, the major problem with such claims is prospect to enforce uh, the judgment. Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. So applying to to the European Court of Human Rights is hardly an effective remedy, given that Russia will not uh, comply with the judgment, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, those claims have been brought primarily not to miss the limitation period. Uh, and to get a positive judgment in favor of Ukrainian claimants. Mm. Obviously, we know that there is a requirement to to exhaust local remedies, mm-hmm. uh, but we know that it makes no sense to file claims with Russian courts to exhaust local remedies. The futility exception. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the decision was made to, to file the, the claim directly uh, to the European Court of Human Rights without waiting, with, without complying with this requirement. We'll see how it goes. Yes. You mentioned that you were doing pro bono work um, for, I guess it was for the government or certain arms of the government. Can you give some more explanation on what type of pro bono work you guys are providing or integrity um, specifically? Yeah, happily. Um, so um, I would uh, I would say that Ukrainian uh, diplomatic service uh, has been doing a tremendous job since day one of the war. Uh, of course, uh, the Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs had to give answers to complex, to complex public international law questions within tight deadlines uh, because we had no time to waste. Uh, 
uh, and our arbitration practice was happy to assist the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and other state bodies uh, on a pro bono basis to ensure efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, we did um, ad hoc legal research and provided answers to the questions related to public international law, maritime law, reparations, no-fly zone, and so on and so forth. So it, it, it just uh, was like we contacted the ministry, uh, offered our help, and they said, okay, whenever we have an urgent question, we will shoot it to you by email. <laughs> and, and if you have time, uh, please help us. And uh, that, that's, that's how uh, it worked. We also, as, as I mentioned, uh, offered some pro bono work to our Ukrainian clients uh, if you file that they need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, I know that several international law firms uh, to show solidarity and support also did some pro bono work to big Ukrainian companies. Uh, and it was a great sign of uh, understanding the situation and, and solidarity, as I said. Absolutely. Well, it, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the last example uh, that Queen Emmanuel uh, is advising Ukraine on a U- European Court of Human Rights claim against Russia, uh, also on a pro bono basis. Uh, I know there are some other examples when international law firms offered to advise the Ukrainian government on other issues, such as uh, sanctions against Russia, uh, also uh, on a pro bono basis. And uh, I personally uh, received several uh, emails from leading law firms uh, saying that if, if you know that the government needs help, we will mm-hmm. be happy to assist. We don't need payment. We just try to find a way how we can be helpful and uh, obviously our, our knowledge and experience uh, can be useful to Ukraine in this, uh, in this nightmare which is going on in Ukraine. Absolutely. And I think that is a, a good place to stop, which is it's, it's ongoing and this is still a very live issue and still um, a very contentious issue that is sensitive to so many people, both in, inside of Ukraine and those that have had to leave. So um, I'd like to thank you for um, enlightening us and giving us a small snippet of what's happening both both in Ukraine and abroad. And um, yes, thank you so much for all of it. Thank you uh, for inviting me and that uh, a broad audience uh, uh, will have an opportunity to listen uh, about the situation in Ukraine uh, because uh, for me it is important uh, uh, to keep Ukraine in the agenda and uh, let people know what is, what is going on uh, and also uh, not only to attract attention but also to attract um, some maybe financial support uh, to, to, to people who are really in need right now and understanding uh, how, how, how uh, things are happening. So Absolutely. thank you very th- thank you very much. And uh, just to add, uh, we try to be optimistic, mm-hmm. and uh, we really hope that when the war uh, will be ended, uh, Ukraine uh, will get uh, investments to reconstruct uh, everything, including in- infrastructure. And we hope that new business will come to Ukraine and generate more work, not only for 
dispute resolution, uh, but also for other practices. Absolutely. If anyone wants to send in comments, questions, or wants to help, uh, just email the arbitration station at gmail.com and we can forward it on to Christina or, or to the right firm. So um, thank you. And it is a long road ahead, but it's, uh, it's optimistic, as you say, it's, it's best to stay optimistic in these hard times. Yeah, thank you very much.